O God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. You know, we live in a world these days that is marked probably more by difference than by sameness. And, um, you know, in the early part of the week when I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking about that in the context of different restaurants and the way that we're exposed to religious and cultural difference just by going to eat at the Indian restaurant or the Mexican restaurant or the Chinese restaurant, when we may not even recognize that the symbols around us are often religious symbols. But as I was reading um, the news this morning and Chali and I were discussing what happened yesterday um, in Washington, D.C. Uh, with the young people who were um, taunting that Native American elder. And I think about um, that, how much more serious that brings the discussion that we are having here. What do we do with the difference in our world? And as Christian people, how are we to respond to that? With love? With respect? Not with, with fear or ignorance or hate, but rather with a deep respect for life, for human life. And so I think in so many ways, um, this reminds me of how important having the conversation that we are having is right now. Um, when we think about this in the context of religions, we wade into a field called the theology of religion. And there's a couple of things that I want to lift up that I'm probably going to say every week of this series because I think they're important to repeat. Um, we are looking at four different models about how Christians might understand and relate to um, other religions and persons of other religions. And we're doing that looking at Paul Knitter's um, work in his book, Introducing Theologies of Religions. And I told you last week, and I'll say it again, this is a big topic. It could be a graduate, uh, a whole semester long course in graduate school. And so there will inevitably be nuances and details that I'm gonna leave out for the sake of time. But you're invited to learn more if this is a topic that interests you. And I also want to acknowledge that this is a, an intellectual and an academic series and an academic topic. You know, we're all wired different ways. And some of us like the stuff that touches our hearts or touches on spiritual practices. And others of us need our intellect to be stimulated, right? And so this is a series that kind of goes straight to your head before it goes to your heart. And as we go through each week, and um, my, my hope each week will be to present each viewpoint to help you get inside of it a little bit, right? To wear that hat or to look through that telescope for that day. Um, and as we do that, uh, to try to be respectful of every position, whether or not it's the one that you happen to agree with. And it may be that when you come to the end of this series, you pick bits and pieces of all of them and say, this is my position, actually, a combination of them, or perhaps even something totally different. So I want to remind us again, I mentioned the telescope, and Paul Knitter talks about how when we look up at this starry sky, and we look at it with our naked eyes, we can see all of it, but we can't see any part of it in great detail. And so we pull out our own telescope, our own religious lens, that helps us see a very small part of the sky in great detail. And yet, when we do that, we have suddenly missed what else there is to see in the sky. 
And so to try to get at a broader view, we can borrow someone else's telescope and try to look through their religious lens. When we do this, it does two things, right? It both deepens our own theological position, but it also gives us greater openness to someone else's. So the last thing that I want to repeat um, from last week is that all four of these models are distinctly Christian. So they struggle between what we could call the, particul the particularist texts of the Bible that proclaim Jesus is the one and only Savior and the universalist texts of the Bible that announce that God is a God of love who wills all people happiness and salvation. And these models, each of them try to accomplish this goal without falling into either relativism or absolutism. So last Sunday, we looked at the replacement model just as a very brief review. The replacement model, the position is that Christianity is the only one true religion, and in fact, it ends up replacing all other religions. Today, we're gonna to look at the fulfillment model. And in this model, Christianity is positioned as the one religion that in the end fulfills all the other religions. Next week, we'll look at the, the mutuality model. This, in this model, Christianity is positioned as one of many true religions, and it's called to dialogue and work with other religions toward common goals. And then the last model that we'll look at is the acceptance model. And in this model, Christianity is positioned as one of many true religions. It's called to accept the goals of other religions on their own terms. So, this is the overview, and today we're going to focus in on the fulfillment model. So, right off the bat, the fulfillment model distinguishes itself from the replacement model. Paul Knitter writes this, it offers a, the a theology that will give equal weight to the two foundational Christian convictions that we've already heard about, that God's love is universal, extending to all, all peoples, and that God's love is particular, made real in Jesus Christ. So, so this model walks a very fine line, a very fine line between affirming God's presence in other religions and also God's special presence in Jesus Christ. So um, the interesting thing to me is that for many Christians, this is their unconscious default. Like they, they don't have the maybe theological language to articulate this position, but if you really talk to, talk to them and get into it, and you might find this in yourself as we're going through this, you're like, oh, I do think that. Or you, you also may not, but um, you may find a lot of um, synergy with this one. So the, the idea basically is that other religions are valuable and God is found within them, and that Christians need to dialogue with them, not just preach to them. So to help us understand this model, I first want to kind of look back a little bit and to look at some history uh, of the early church that um, lays a foundation for what the fulfillment model looks like. So in this sense, I think it's helpful to think about um, the balance um, between the universality of God's love and the particularity of Jesus as a teeter-totter, right? You know those, like it goes back and forth, and when you're a kid, like, uh, sometimes you're trying to like put the other person like up in the air and sometimes you're the one who's like yay I want to fly off the end and other times you're trying to figure out how many kids do we put on each side and how close to the middle do we sit so that it's equal. So in this teeter-totter between the universality and the particularity um, of Jesus, 
Um, over the course of Christian history, we have seen that teeter-totter go back and forth, right? And the fulfillment model seeks to bring those two into equilibrium. So we first have to look at this a concept that was prominent the, the first three centuries of Christianity, okay? So like way, way back, okay? So during this time, Christians begin moving out into the Greco-Roman world, and, and they became a persecuted minority when they did that. At the same time, the church fathers were trying to figure out what is the meaning of this broader pagan culture, and they did so by reflecting on the word of God, okay? And word of God, uh, word in Greek is logos, and we can think of word of God like the spoken word, but also Jesus as the word with a capital W of God. And so they coined an expression, which was logos um, spermatikos. Okay, so logos is word and spermatikos is seed. And so the idea was that Christians experienced the word of God made flesh in Jesus in this very particular way. But the same word of God is like scattered out into the world. And it's like seeds, right? When seeds are scattered, they scatter uh, with the wind and they just blow kind of wherever and they land wherever and then they take root. And so one of the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, said that anyone who hears God's call in this seed word that has been scattered out throughout the whole world and tries to follow its lead, is actually already a Christian, even though they've never heard of Jesus. This is in the first three centuries of Christianity, okay, that this thought is being developed. Another early church father, Tertullian, made the same point, but he made it a little bit more strongly. He said that because of God's universal presence and call, the spirit of every single man and every single woman is naturally Christian. Because God's love is universal and the seed word has gone out into all the world. And so those early Christians, they still confirmed that the seed word in other cultures and other religions needed to be fulfilled by the word with a capital W of Jesus. But this is a very strong affirmation that God saves beyond the church. However, after those first three centuries of Christianity... We move into a time when Christianity became the religion of the empire, right, under Constantine. And so this meant that the welfare of the church and the welfare of the state were intertwined, like this. So this changed the view of those who were outside the church. And so in a way, that teeter-totter swings back, right? We, we had, in the first three centuries, we saw a swing toward universality, and now we're seeing, seeing a swing back toward the particularity. So St. Augustine's writings greatly influenced this view. He insisted, um, like Bart, who you will remember uh, we talked about last Sunday and his development. Now, of course, St. Augustine lived long before Bart, so Bart is probably the one being influenced by, by Augustine. But this is a similar concept that we are saved only by grace. And St. Augustine became convinced that such saving grace is not found beyond the church, but only within it. And, and he was so sure of this that he even asserted that people who were outside the church, they would burn in the everlasting fire. And he was not timid about making that claim. And so this attitude of outside the church, there is no salvation, became dominant. And it dominated all the way up until the 16th century. 
But then we have a teeter-totter swing again, okay? Because Christopher Columbus lands in the New World, and there came a new challenge to theology. Wait, what? There's people who haven't yet heard the word of God? We thought we'd already preached to the ends of the earth. What do we do now? What do we do now? And so the teeter-totter shifted back toward universality because not only did these people uh, had these people never heard the word of God, but when the word of God was preached to them, they said, no, thank you. Like, if this is how you act and you're a Christian, I don't want any part of it, right? Because what were the evangelists doing? They were killing people. They were taking over land, right? The native peoples. Think back to this weekend. Let's just let that sit for a minute, right? So this prompted the Council of Trent, um, which uh, met and, and came up with the theological concept of baptism of desire. And this theological concept said that if pagans could not be baptized with water, then they could be baptized through desire. And this meant that if they followed their conscience and they lived morally, that they were implicitly expressing a desire to join the church, and therefore, they could thus get in the doors of heaven. So this represented a shift, okay? It was a shift from outside the church, there is no salvation, to without the church, there is no salvation. The church still had an important role, but it was a different kind of role. This allowed for a more positive view of other religions, but not necessarily the people themselves who practiced those other religions. So then comes the 1960s, and a theologian, a German Jesuit named Karl Rainer, and he began to explore this concept a lot more deeply in his own study and spiritual life, and through that, he became convinced that God's world was so much bigger than the Christian world, and specifically than the Catholic world. And so in 1961, he crafted a theological case built on Catholic doctrine that became a truly revolutionary new theology of religions at that time. And this is the basis of our fulfillment model. Okay, so in the fulfillment model, Karl Rayner starts with the most basic premise that God is love, period. And he says that if God is love, then God wants to reach out and embrace all people and all beings, okay? So in other words, God, if God is love, then God really does want to save all people. And if God really wants to save all people, then God will do whatever is necessary to make this possible, okay? So you follow the logic, if this, then this, of his argument. And then he goes on to argue that, that we actually have a graced nature, Okay? That, that if we were to feel, like truly, deeply feel, what it is like to be a natural man or a natural woman, we would be able to feel our graced nature. Because for Rainer, grace, I love this image, grace is like the electricity that lights up a light bulb. It makes it what it really is. Okay, so, so this, um, this is like the most evident way that, or I'm sorry, this is most evident in the way that we know or the way that we love, okay? So no matter how much we know, we want to know more. And no, no matter how much we are loving toward another person or no, no matter how much someone loves us, we have this desire for more, for greater love. We still feel this tug. And Carl Rayner would say that's the divine, that's the tug on our hearts for divine love. 
that, uh, that's that more that we desire. So this points both to a confirmation of um, some theology that we talked about last week in the replacement model, but also a correction, okay? The confirmation that you find here is that we are fallen beings, and we are broken, we are sinful on our own, but Rainer then also corrects that by saying, according to the Apostle Paul, yeah, it's true that evil exists in our world, and to deny that is naive and dangerous, but as St. Paul writes in Romans 5, and uh, Natalie read for us this morning, the law came in with the result that when the trespass or the sin multiplied, uh, grace abounded all the more, right? And so even though we've fallen into this deep ditch and we are broken, grace abounds. And our graced nature is the stronger nature. It is the more natural nature for us than the broken or sinful or evil nature that also exists within us. So he was an optimist about salvation. He thought that our potential to be saved is greater than our reality as fallen creatures. All right, so his next step then is to talk about embodied grace. So in this fulfillment model, as fleshed out by Karl Rayner's theology, God's grace, it is active in other religions. And he constructed this argument based on the idea that human beings are embodied and social beings, okay? Everything we know, everything we believe, everything we are, everything we commit ourselves to comes to us through our bodies and through the bodies of other people. And so we know what is real in a material, physical sense. And he argues that this is true for us both as human beings and also as spiritual beings. And that's why the church has sacraments, because we need something tangible to make God's grace known to us, revealed to us. And so Rainer concludes that grace has to be embodied. God's presence has to take some kind of material shape. And so then he makes this theological move that then, of course, among the many bodies that God's presence can assume in human history, we can expect that one of the foremost and most effective will be the religions of the world, okay? Because what he's saying is that through religions, humans carry out their search for deeper meaning, right? For understanding that tug for, of divine love. And, and so it is through the efforts of any religion to, to reach out and to create rituals and symbols and stories about the meaning and purpose of life um, that, that is that kind of uh, divine tug, okay? Is this making sense? Yes? All right, so then he has a, a third step, okay? The third step in this theology of grace that you find in the fulfillment model is that all grace is God's grace, okay? So this introduces um, a difference between what we could call an efficient cause and a final cause. So, an efficient cause produces something that wasn't there to begin with. A final cause represents the goal of what is being produced and so uh, makes possible and guides the entire production. So I just want to give you an example before we go to how Jesus fits into this. So, the example is that a carpenter, right, who's making a table is 
the efficient cause of the table he makes, okay? Because the carpenter is producing something that wasn't there to begin with. But the idea, the vision for the table that was in the carpenter's head represents the table's purpose, how it should be constructed, and is actually the final cause, okay? The idea in the head that represents the purpose and how it should be constructed is the final cause. So the fulfillment model says that Jesus is the final cause, okay? So the idea is that the love of God has always been there. It's part of God's very nature, and it's part of our nature because we have a graced nature. But Jesus is the final cause of God's love because in him we're able to see what God is doing, what God intends to bring about in giving the divine spirit to all people. So in the replace, well, okay. So it's like Jesus is revealing the bridge that's already there. There's already connection between us and God. We're not separated. God already graced our nature and God already reached down in love. And so Jesus reveals the bridge that's there, okay? So in the fulfillment model, um, we, we see that kind of Jesus as the final cause reveals the bridge. This is a big difference between this model and the replacement model because in the replacement model, um, Jesus is the efficient cause, okay? So that means if a person doesn't know Jesus, they can't experience God's saving love. Um, so like in the replacement model, Jesus is the bridge. Make sense? Right? Okay. So um, in this fulfillment model, where Jesus is the final cause and reveals the bridge, it means that people can still know Jesus, or people who do not know Jesus can still experience the saving love of God, but they don't really see the clear purpose or possibilities of that, okay? So Rainer calls folks in that category anonymous Christians. Like it's, it's like they're Christians because of God's saving grace through their own religious systems, even though they don't call themselves Christians. Make sense? Sort of? All right. So, so then the question becomes, um, what about salvation? Okay? So in the fulfillment model, grace is present in other religions. We're granted this concept of anonymous Christians. But then the question is, is this the same as being saved? Right? What about salvation? So for Rainer in this fulfillment model, um, religions can be ways of salvation. And that uh, through um, any religion, God is drawing people to God's self, even through the beliefs and practices of Hinduism, of Buddhism, of Islam. And Rainer said that non-Christian religions can be a positive means of gaining the right relationship to God, and thus for, attaining, for the attaining of salvation, a means which is therefore positively included in God's plan of salvation. So the idea is that they can be saved because of their non-Christian religion, not in spite of it. But he also doesn't throw a blanket statement over all other religions and all other persons who ascribe to other religions. But he opens up the possibility and the probability that God is speaking other languages than just Christian. And he says that above all else, we have to guard against corruption in Christianity and also in all other religions, right? Twisted uses of religion that, that take people away from that divine love rather than toward the divine love. 
Okay, so before we move to the concept of dialogue, I just have to acknowledge that there are other variations of the fulfillment model, okay? But they are so nuanced and so numerous that there's no way I can cover them <laughs> this morning. But they're in Paul Knitter's book, so if you're curious, go, uh, go read um, these chapters on the fulfillment model. Um, but the other thing I wanna do before we move back to um, dialogue is to look at, um, since I started with some history from the Catholic Church, is to look at um, the way that Vatican II embraced much of, but not all of, Rayner's thought and theological argument that comes out in this fulfillment model. So I wanna do that by lifting up the other two scriptures that Natalie read for us this morning. So the first part um, is, uh, oh yeah, so, so it's a new attempt, right? It's another teeter-totter uh, in the course of the institutional church between the universal message and the particular message. So the first part of that balance is this continued focus on the particular role that Jesus Christ has in reconciling all people, us and all people, to God, as articulated by 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 and 19, right? This concept that all of this is, is from God who has reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. On the other hand, Vatican II emphasizes the universal reach of God's Holy Spirit, right? And this goes back to that idea of the, the seed word that's scattered to the wind and the wind blows it where it will, right? So God's Holy Spirit is full of surprises it's creating spiritual treasures in the religions of the world. It's providing for an undercurrent of unity, and it's encouraging dialogue. And they link this to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 8, where it says, The wind, or the spirit, blows where it chooses. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. And so it is with everyone born of the spirit. All right, so let's look at dialogue now. Because the fulfillment model opens up a different kind of interreligious dialogue and a different way of approaching persons of other faiths than, than what the replacement model offered us last week. So in this model, um, God is already there, right, working in the other religions. So when a missionary sets out to talk to a Hindu, God has already been present, making God's self known to that Hindu. And so the missionary might find themselves a little bit surprised at what God is doing before they ever went. So it's not so much that it's about um, Christians having all the answers and other, other persons of other religions having all the uh, questions, but rather um, there are questions and answers on both sides. And that the concept is that we are all in the process of conversion because we are all being converted toward God's great love. Okay, we come back to that theological um, principle. And that we are all invited to a deeper conversion to God's great love. Now, you can imagine that this model was pretty quickly challenged on, then what's the really point of evangelism? Like, why should we really tell anyone, right? Um, because if everybody else is already an anonymous Christian, is there really a point? Um, and the fulfillment model says enthusiastically, yes, there is still a point. And the reason to continue to evangelize in the fulfillment model is that um, uh, sharing the good news helps people become more fully aware of and more committed to what they really are, which is children of God called to live lives of justice and love as seen in Jesus Christ. Okay? 
So you can imagine, like in every model, there are some insights that all of us can gain from this model, whether or not we find that it's the model we most strongly identify with. And there's also some challenges and some questions that we could pose um, to this model to push it uh, a little bit further for better clarification. And I would imagine that just like last week, there were parts of this that you were like, yeah, I get that and it really makes sense in my heart and in my mind. And there might have been other parts of it that you were like, mm, maybe not. I don't know if I can go quite there, okay? And that's part of the point of this series as we try to kind of get our minds in each of these models, it helps us discern in our own spirits um, what it is that we believe and what is our own theology of religions. And I just want to remind you that on the very last Sunday of this series, we'll be engaging in some conversation. We'll share some insights and critiques of each model and engage in some conversation so that you have that space and chance to think about what it is that you believe. But next week, we're going to focus on the mutuality model and look at um, this one in which Christianity is positioned as one of many true religions that's called to dialogue and work with other religions toward common goals. And so I'm gonna invite us again today to close um, in a spirit of prayer, and I'm gonna pray a prayer from the World Council of Churches, a prayer for peace by Christian, Jewish, and Muslim clergy that has been used um, in many places for interreligious worship, especially during the time of the Gulf War. So let us pray. Eternal God, creator of the universe, there is no God but you. Great and wonderful are your works, wondrous are your ways. Thank you for the many and splendid variety of your creation. Thank you for the many ways we affirm your presence and purpose, and thank you for the freedom to do so. Forgive our violation of your creation. Forgive our violence toward each other. We stand in awe and gratitude for your persistent love for each and all of your children, Christian, Jew, Muslim, as well as those of other faiths. Grant to all and our leaders attributes of the strong, mutual respect in words and deed, restraint, in the exercise of power, and the will for peace with justice for all. Eternal God, creator of the universe, there is no God but you.